This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening to the City of London. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is on assignment. He is at the Farnborough Air Show. We're going to hear from him and some of his interviews later on in the hour. So I am joined uh, by Damien Sassauer. So he is from Bloomberg Intelligence. He knows stuff about sports and emerging markets. So we're going to make him talk about UK politics and Italian (laughs) politics. It's going to be fun. Um, It's just past 5 p.m. in the city of London. And if you're in the city of London, I'm sorry because it is insanely hot where you guys are. And as I understand, barely anyone has air conditioning. Have you heard about this heat wave, Damien? I have. It's very dangerous, actually. I've heard uh, temperatures of 40 degrees Celsius. That's about 104 degrees Fahrenheit here in the U.S. I mean, that is major stuff. And and there was an article last week about that's how you get people back in the office. Because (laughs) if if you have 100 degree heat or if, you know, 40 degrees Celsius and no air conditioning, you're going to go back to the office for sure. We're going to get more update on weather and then what it all means. And will we get the gas uh, turned back on for Nord Stream 1 um, in the next hour as well? We'll get all that information for you. We got you covered from lots of different angles here. First, let's get some headlines with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much. And here's what's going on. we got to begin with the weather forecast. And in terms of temperatures in London and the south of England, they could hit a record-setting 40 degrees Celsius this week. Hotter than the forecast in Madrid, Rome, or Marseille. All of the country's 10 warmest years have occurred since 2002, according to data from the Met Office going back to 1984. Meanwhile, London Luton Airport is reporting a surface defect on one of its runways because of high temperatures. Across Europe, the tally of the damage for this summer has just started. More than 600 people have died across the region. Large swaths of France, Italy, and Greece are facing extreme risk of wildfires. The European Union has sent three firefighting planes to help battle forest fires, two to Portugal and one to Slovenia. Amazon.com's UK grocery business will match prices on hundreds of everyday items to those offered by rival Tesco in an aggressive move against Britain's largest supermarket chain. Produce, meat and fish are among the categories that Amazon says it will match and lock to the prices that are offered by Tesco's Club Card Loyalty Initiative. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Charlie Pellet, thank you so very much. Uh, so how is your vocabulary on, on UK politics, it's, Damien? It's 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 not bad. I mean, <laughs> I, I didn't see the debate with Liz Truss, but I hear she's looking for a Bank of Japan-style mandate. She's looking to undermine credibility of the BOE. I heard some awful, awful things. But then again, I heard it from uh, Chancellor of Exchequer, uh, the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. So I guess uh, I guess he's sort of, uh, he's got his own agenda there. Yeah, he's a little biased. But to your point, uh, let's hear from Liz Truss's own words. She's Foreign Secretary uh, for the UK. There was that debate, as Damien was talking about last night, and she did bring the Bank of England into the discussion. Here's part of what she had to say. I think we need to look at the best practice around the world, the countries who've been most successful at controlling inflation, for example, the Bank of Japan. And we've seen slow growth for decades. We need to do different. We need to be bolder. That was Liz Truss, a foreign secretary, in the debate. So let's get more on this. Joe Mays uh, joins us from Bloomberg. Um, So, Joe, at 8 o'clock, I think your time tonight, is when we get the next round of voting. Um, What did you make of yesterday? Like, what's up with bringing the BOE in at this point? 
Yeah, so it is a popular view among many Tory MPs that the Bank of England has effectively been failing recently in terms of curbing inflation. It hasn't done enough on interest rates to stick to its 2% target. And that's why Liz Truss is kind of making that point. And she has a lot of people who are on the right of the party supporting her who also believe this as well. But you're right, like it's somewhat worrying in terms of the Bank of England's independence. It sounds like if Truss became Prime Minister, she would look to change the mandate, perhaps introducing a money supply target rather than the 2% target. So that was a really interesting point in the debate last night. Also interesting was the way in which all the other candidates were quite directly uh, attacking Rishi Sunak because he is the front runner in this contest. And pretty much all of them, bar one, used that opportunity to ask a question. Uh, they, 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 they targeted Sunak. They could have asked anyone, but they all targeted Sunak. And that shows, I think, how he's still the favourite in this race and they're trying to kind of get a leg up on him. Joe, you know, I'm wondering, you know, if you could just for our audience give us a little bit of a sense of, I mean, this this kind of sense of, of money supply targeting harks back to the days of Margaret Thatcher in the early 1990s. You know, w- what happened there and, and why did, you know, the United Kingdom move away from that policy toward inflation targeting? Like, just a little bit of history there. Yeah, so in terms of the history, money supply targeting was, was, was a Thatcher idea, but it didn't really work. And that was the issue. And indeed, the money supply did grow quite a lot under Thatcher and it was basically junked because it was thought that having an inflation target would be more effective and it was in 1997 when the last uh, Labour government came into power that Tony Blair and his Chancellor Gordon Brown had this policy of banking independence, one of the first things they announced. And it has been seen as a pretty successful model, uh, you know, of, over the last couple of decades. I mean, we have seen the kind of blip recently where inflation has been much higher than that 2% target, um, which is why we're seeing this backlash now. But it's seen as kind of an institutional setup that's been good for the UK. I think that's why there's some worry today about it, about it not uh, continuing. At the same time, it's like, let's just cut all the taxes and then blame the BOE for everything at the same time. Um, hey, Joe, who gets knocked out today? So Tom Tugendhat is likely to get knocked out. He was in fifth place uh, at the last vote. There's no sign of him kind of gaining momentum. So we'll be down to that final four. The key thing to watch for is who who is in second, because it's likely that Rishi Sunak will come out first, but who jumps into second place? Is it still Penny Mordaunt, or will Liz Truss leapfrog her? Because that would be a very important moment to show that then it's likely Sunak and Truss will be the final two. There's like a battle for second place here, which is the most interesting thing to watch for. And, and so what's the timing there? I mean, once you get down to those two candidates and it goes forward to the ballot of party members, I mean, how long until we have a new prime minister? Yeah, so that will take about six weeks. So they are committed to announcing the new prime minister on September 5th. So that's the time frame. Cause that's when Parliament comes back after its summer break. So, yeah, within you know, about six weeks time, we'll have a new prime minister. Uh, which I'm sure Joe is going to be extremely excited about uh, at this point. Um, so, of course. <laughs> yeah, they'll be like, can we stop talking about this? Um, also, what, what made headlines for me was over the weekend, Richie Sunak writing the Sunday Telegraph that he is vowing to scrap or reform all of the EU law, red tape and bureaucracy that's still on the statute book. And that's basically just dumping all the stuff that was left over from the EU, particularly in terms of taxes. But apparently someone in Treasury, when he was in office there, uh, was writing that you just can't do that. You can't back out of the taxes that are left over from uh, being part of the EU. Where are we on all of that? Yeah, so it's a kind of key feature of any conservative leadership campaign that you want to be positioning yourself as a candidate who is pretty anti-EU. And Rishi Sunak was making those public announcements over the weekend. But as you say, at the same time, his own Treasury Department was saying only very recently that that wouldn't be possible for some some, some law. And that, that, that's simply just where it stands. And Rishi Sunak hasn't really come out and responded to that uh, article that we produced. So it's kind of still up in the air as to whether he would try and get rid of those 
those tax rules. But uh, yeah, the, the broader point here is one of you, you want to be harking back that pro-Brexit crowd, and that's why you try to make statements like this. And Rishi Sunak has been trying to emphasise his Brexit credentials versus, say, Liz Truss. Liz Truss campaigned for Remain. So there was a moment in the debate yesterday where Rishi Sunak said, you know, which do you regret more, supporting Remain or having previously been a Liberal Democrat? Because Liz Truss hasn't always been a Conservative. So it got quite, got quite feisty and personal on that level. Yeah, sounds like he's appealing to the hard Brexit faction of the Conservative Party. I mean, how big is that faction and what else could uh, Rishi Sunak be doing to, to sort of gain favor with them? Yeah, so there were about 30 MPs who you'd, who'd kind of classify in that caucus, and they were previously backing Suella Braveman, who got knocked out the last round. So their votes will be redistributed tonight. But it's not only MPs, he's also thinking about the membership as well, and they have mm-hmm. that final vote that we've been talking about, and they are generally more pro-Brexit. In terms of more he can do, well, you know, he, he's been stressing what policies he has done in government. He talks about the free ports policy, some reform to alcohol taxes, which are emotionally connected to Brexit. So he has a record he can talk to, and that's what he's been highlighting. Hey, Joe, thanks a lot. Always appreciate Joe Mays joining us from Bloomberg. 8 o'clock uh, is that voice, uh, is that vote tonight, a UK time. All right, coming up, you go from UK politics to Italian politics and dysfunction that continues to evolve there. We'll get the latest on the ground from Italy. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Listen to the cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York, alongside Damien Sassauer, who's in for Guy Johnson, who is currently on assignment uh, in Farnborough uh, in near London. Um, I mentioned UK to Italian politics, so let's get right to it. Um, on Wednesday, Mario Draghi is going to be uh, potentially facing another vote of confidence. Um, the president, Mattarella, is desperately trying to get Mario Draghi to stay. Let's get the latest on the ground from Alessandro Speciale, uh, joining us from Bloomberg. Alessandro. What is the latest? Where are we? Will Mario Draghi be able to get the coalition back and stay in power? So we are still, hello, good evening. So we are still in the middle of the crisis, but there are some tentative signs that some sort of agreement might be reached to close the crisis and keep Mario Draghi as the head of the government. What is happening is that some lawmakers from the Five Star Movement, that is the party that actually started the crisis last week, are thinking of ways to ditch their leader, Giuseppe Conte, and to pledge and keep supporting Draghi as prime minister. Of course, this remains still very tentative. There are a lot of movements, a lot of talks in Rome among lawmakers. And of course, it's still not clear whether Draghi will feel this is enough to mend the breach of trust that he blamed when he resigned. But definitely there is movement. And we'll see on Wednesday when Draghi speaks in parliament whether this will have been enough. Well, you know, uh, Alessandro, talk to us about Matteo Salvini and the league. You know, I mean, obviously, I heard some of the support is wavering there, and he's threatened to leave the alliance. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. So Salvini is the one who is probably in an even uh, more complicated situation now compared to Conte. Why is that? His party, the League, is in Draghi's government, so he supports Draghi, and he has been doing really badly in the polls. And uh, the biggest party in his coalition is Brothers of Italy, another far-right party, which is outside of Draghi's government. So it has kind of be enjoying the position of being the only party which is not in Draghi's very broad and very divided coalition. So if we go to elections now, the center-right bloc as a whole would probably win the elections easily. And this is a strong incentive for Salvini to push for the election, saying... I am done with Conte, I'm done with Draghi. But he would be number two in the coalition while he was riding high top of the polls until just a few months ago. So he maybe thinks if there is a few months more, maybe I'll be able to reverse the situation. 
At the same time, we have Italian yields doing like nothing. I mean, I look at the 10-year, you're looking at 327 uh, over in Italy. Where is the, what do you make of the lack of reaction of BTPs? Well, I would say there are probably three things as part of this. The first one is that the big day is, of course, Thursday when DCB is supposed to announce its anti-fragmentation tool, and probably investors have a relatively sanguine opinion that DCB is going to come out with something convincing. Then there is the convincing also that eventually Draghi will stay in power, just for the reason we were discussing before. And finally, this latest news that showed that the pendulum is slightly swinging back towards stability from the crisis imminent, which we had over the weekend, probably is also somewhat reassuring for investors. Yeah, and then you look at the BTB bun spread, right? I mean, we're at 210 bips, you know? I mean, what if everything goes wrong here? What if, you know, Draghi's (laughs) forced out? I mean, where does that spread go? Can we see 250 bips? Can we see higher than that? Oh, we could see. I mean, during the crisis, we saw 500 basis points. That, 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 would be, that would be really hard to stomach for Italy. But then again, I mean, you know, the average maturity of Italian bonds is more than seven years. So it takes quite a while, even for higher rates now, to spread into the whole load of the very, very big burden of Italian debt. So even if spreads were to rise very dramatically, it will take a long time before it feeds into the Italian public finances. Yeah, and, and I, it's just really also hard to see as you were mentioning, how the ECB uh, plays into all of that. Like, how do they define this part of the spread is because due to Italian politics, we can't support that. But this other part isn't. That's because we're hiking. So let's go support that. I mean, I literally don't know how something like that works out. Um, Alessandro, thanks very much. I know you're doing triple duty. Alessandro Speciale of Bloomberg joining us on Italian politics. Um, And we think the U.S. is somewhat dysfunctional in politics. I mean, they asked me to talk about anything but Italian politics. (laughs) Fair enough. All right, so (laughs) we got U.K. politics, Italian politics, and then it's still really, really hot. And we don't know if the gas is going to be turning on 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 Thursday. Thursday, The EU estimates that if you shut off Russian gas altogether, you're looking at a 1.5% hit to GDP. We'll discuss that coming up. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAP Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York along with Damien Sassauer. Guy Johnson is on assignment. And let me tell you, he will not stop complaining about how hot it is. And then I saw the temperatures and then I was like, fine, he can complain about how hot it is. He was sitting basically on a tarmac with 40 degrees Celsius weather. It's really hot over in Europe. It is severe drought, severe weather problems. And does it continue to get worse? There were so many headlines out today. Dealing with gas and energy, I literally could not keep track. Um, first up, you got the EU estimating that Russian gas, if it's halted altogether, could cut GDP by 1.5% um, for Europe. Then you have uh, Gazprom apparently had a force majeure that they couldn't deliver to three buyers of uh, natural gas back in June, and the force majeure uh, came out uh, last week. Then Uniper reject Gazprom's force majeure. I mean, come on, you can't make this stuff up at the end of the day. Um, And then you have um, an individual from the EU, an official, saying that we should be prepared for the gas to be cut off from Russia. It's messy. It's really 
really messy. Damien, do you have your air conditioner pump full? I, I do, I do. But I think you're right. I mean, to focus on Thursday, I mean, whether or not they turn Nord Stream back on is absolutely critical, not just to Europe, but to the broader you know, energy market, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's where all eyes are focused. But yeah, certainly... Uniper, I mean, they've been in talks with the German government. They're looking for a bailout. You know, it's anyone's guess as to where we go next, Alex. They already used up their credit line. So let's try yeah. and get make sense of all this. Uh, Rachel Morrison is joining us. She heads up uh, renewable coverage and energy coverage for Bloomberg. Um, Rachel, there was so many headlines, as I was just describing. What's the most significant takeaway today from the energy crisis over in Europe? Yes, there has been a lot of news today. Um, I think it's probably this emerging story on the force majeure um, that Gazprom has declared on on some European buyers. So it's not really so much the force majeure because it, it's backward looking and we don't really have that many details, but it's the signal that's being sent to the market, which is expect uncertainty, expect Gazprom and Russia to possibly cut flows you know it's it that's sort of how it's being interpreted by the market as a sign of things to come that anything can happen you know if you thought that the maintenance was just going to be straightforward and flows would be restored it looks like it's going to be a lot more complicated than that well rachel i, I mean if i'm not mistaken uniper right now storage levels are something on the order of 55 56 percent i think the german government was hoping they would get to 90 percent heading into the uh the winter months no way. i mean it's not going to happen right i mean what what is the german government prepared to do how are they uh, expected to step in if at all well at the moment the government, we understand, want to wait and see what happens on Thursday when Nord Stream flows are supposed to be restored. So Uniper are really sounding the alarm that financially things are not going well for them. They've drawn down the last of the credit facility that's backed by the government and they're actually taking gas out of storage. So if that's going to continue, then, yeah, that storage target is going to be really difficult to meet. So they're piling the pressure on the government to agree some kind of bailout for the company. Um, but we may not see that until the end of the week. All the time, storage, you know, is is being withdrawn and, mm-hmm. and not going in the right direction. It's supposed to be, you know, getting get, getting the level that's supposed to be going up. So that does make winter more difficult. That said, if flows, com- you know, went back to 40%, most analysts, that on Nord Stream, most analysts think that does put us in a decent position to fill storage. But if those flows don't return or or return lower than 40%, then that does put that target at risk. Also, I know we talk about it being so binary, but, you know, just because it goes back to 40% Thursday doesn't mean it can't get shut off on Friday. I mean, it feels like it's still a rolling target at the end of the day. Um, Uniper has obviously been front and center in the companies that have been struggling. It already was run through um, its credit line. Um, are there, what other companies are next as the domino keeps falling? It's hard to tell. There is one other German company that is a subsidiary of, of ENBW, which is a, a sort of big utility. So it really depends on your exposure to Russian gas. So does that company, ENI, um, in Italy, also by Russian gas. Angie in France, also by Russian gas. RWE, the same. So at the moment, those companies have less of an exposure and seem to be finding credit more easily. But the longer this goes on, the bigger the margin calls from exchanges are as people try to trade in these volatile markets, the more that's going to take its toll on other companies as well. 
Well, Rachel, we already know that uh, uh, Uniper's Finnish parent has extended an $8 billion credit line. And, you know, obviously it's seeking to extend its $2 billion credit line with KFW. My question is, how big of a bailout might actually be acquired? I mean, these are huge, huge numbers. I mean, what's what's the talk? I mean, what's your what's your take on that? I mean, could this be a, a you know a ten billion dollar default if it actually materializes? Yes, the number that we had heard was nine billion. Wow. It, we don't know what kind of structure that would be in, and I think that's that's about the same amount that the government, the German government, had to bail out Lufthansa. But wow. part of what makes these discussions difficult are the Finns. So the Finnish government and Fortum, the company, don't want to give any more money. They say they've already given this $8 billion you mentioned, and they've been generous enough. And they're really pushing it back to the German government to say, it's your problem. Even suggesting that the German um, system security relevant parts of Uniper could be ring-fenced and bailed out by the German government and the other bit left. Mm-hmm. So they're really saying, this is your problem. Um, which is why Germany wants to see what happens on Thursday and see if if that could affect the price at which they they have to bail out Uniper, you know, if it affects the share price or not. Oh my God, it's going to get oh, ugly. Really, yeah, it's going to get ugly. Rachel, thanks a lot. Really appreciate Rachel, Mor- Rachel Morrison joining us from Bloomberg. Um, and and Damien, I feel like in essence, the the war with Russia and Ukraine, this is the price of it. So either you. You ha- you're going to bail out the companies, you're going to have to bail out people and their utility bills, or you have to cave to Russia. I mean, the, the, these are the options that the governments are confronting. Well, it's transitioning into consumer into the consumer, right? I mean, look, for me, it's really, if you just look at, you know, for example, here in the U.S., if you look at small business confidence, it's plunged to its lowest since 2013. If you look at, there's just so many metrics, but at the end of the day, crude oil is down 25% from its highs, so you would think things might get a little bit better. Yeah, I am a little bit skeptical uh, <laughs> on that front. Um, and either way, it does come back to the consumer because you either have to pay at utility bills or higher taxes to then bail out the companies. It just does not get any easier. Um, all right, coming up, we are going to go to the Farnborough Air Show, Airbus, Boeing CEO. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Happy Monday, guys. Uh, Damien Sassauer joining me uh, here as well. Guy Johnson is at the Farnborough Show. We'll get to him in just a second. Damien, happy Monday. Happy Monday. It feels like we're in a risk-on rally world. S&P up 7 tenths of 1%. Goldman at one point jumping over 5% uh, after uh, certain areas of their earnings beat estimates, I should say. Um, you have a sell-off in the Treasury market. You have a modestly weaker dollar. So it feels like a risk-on, but you have to wonder how much can this rally be be sustained, or is this a dead cat bounce Monday? Yeah, well, I mean, a little bit of the relief happened overnight in Asia hours, right? You saw that in the China property sector. You saw that those shares sort of rallied back. They're still down 10% month to date, so good luck there. But I think you're absolutely right. It seems like a little bit of a, I don't know, a little bit of a, a relief rally in an illiquid summer season. Fair enough. Volume was really light over in Europe as well. European stocks uh, closed up by about 1%. The FTSE 100 was up 9 tenths of 1%, obviously, because you have commodities rallying as well with that risk on feel. So that's benefiting the FTSE and the energy and the metals and miners. But volume, again, as Damien's pointing out, uh, quite light. So those are your, that's your snapshot for the equity market. Uh, let's get some more headlines for you from Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. A halt of Russian gas supplies to the European 
European Union could potentially reduce its gross domestic product by as much as 1.5% if the next winter is cold and the region fails to take preventive measures to save energy. This according to new estimates from the bloc. A draft EU document seen by Bloomberg News says the European Commission is set to warn that in the event of an average winter, a cutoff of gas shipments from Moscow would reduce the GDP by between 0.6% and 1%. And as we told you moments ago, Gazprom has declared force majeure on several European natural gas buyers, a move that may signal it intends to keep supplies capped, reinforcing Russia's grip on the region's energy. The EU's foreign policy chief says he's hopeful Russia and Ukraine could clinch a deal this week to help export grain from the war-torn country and avert a global food crisis. And Starbucks has asked its advisor Houlihan Loki to assess interest for its UK operations. This according to a Times report over the weekend. The newspaper says the coffee chain continues to evaluate strategic options for its company-owned international operations. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie Pellet, thank you so very much indeed. So Guy Johnson, as I mentioned, I'll show, uh, is in Farnborough. It's the first time in two years we had this huge, three years, maybe three years. Three years. Three years, yeah. Had this really big air show. It's usually a constant push and pull between Airbus and Boeing. Uh, who's going to book the, more, uh, the most orders? And this year... The backdrop is just different. You're dealing with massive supply chain issues. Even if you got the orders for the planes, can you actually get the planes out the door uh, and travel problems all over the place? Yeah, and you also have carriers bidding for quite a bit of money this time around. I mean, look, China did a big deal before the air show earlier mm-hmm, this month, mm-hmm. I think a $37 billion deal with Airbus. Yep. But I mean, there's a lot of deals to go around, a lot of money that's going to exchange hands this week. Yeah, so let's get to some of that. So a uh, guy was there. He talked to a lot of big players. First, we want to start with Boeing. He spoke to Dave Calhoun uh, and talked about the idea of Boeing versus Airbus, and if all of this was really about orders. Well, orders always matter, but probably a bit less now than it used to be the case in the past, because we are constrained by the supply chain at the moment. At Airbus, we have a very large backlog, and the priority is to serve our clients, to serve the existing clients. So we will be taking orders as well, uh, but we're really focusing as much as we can on uh, getting things in order in the supply chain and being able to deliver. Let's talk about those deliveries. You set yourself a target of, what, 720 this year. Do you think you're going to hit that? You're already a little behind where you were last year, and you had a slightly lower target. Well, actually, we are at the same level of where we were end of um, H1 last year. But indeed, as you rightly said, we have to deliver more to get to the 720. So we are slightly behind. It's been a difficult H1, and we'll see how July plays out uh, uh, to see uh, how we manage the rest of the year. It's backloaded. We've had similar situations yep. in the past. I remember 2018 was even more backloaded and we, min- we finally made it. So we'll see. Okay. You and I spoke a few weeks ago in Doha at IATA and you talked to me then about building gliders. You were frustrated. You couldn't get the engines that you wanted. Has there been any improvement? Well, actually, uh, not really. The situation is <laughs> slightly worse? worse. It's slightly worse than what it was uh, end of uh, May when we yep. met uh, last time. We think we're quite at the bottom of the, of the problem. Things will probably get better moving forward, uh, but we need to get more engines to be able to put engines on all our planes and deliver those planes to our customers. How, so how, many, do availability, how many do you currently have without engines? Uh, we are 26 by end of June, 26 planes without engines. We don't like that situation. No. Is it just a narrow body problem? It's just a narrow body problem, yes. For Airbus at least. Okay. 
Rolls-Royce the other day was talking about the idea that they're seeing a stronger wide-body recovery, a faster wide-body recovery than they thought they would see. Where, where do you see yourself in the wide-body recovery? Yes, well, basically, we see the same thing than, uh, than our Rolls-Royce colleagues because uh, yep. our planes are equipped planes with, uh, with Rolls-Royce engines. engines. Uh, actually, that's true. Uh, we see um, a, a good momentum in the wide-body business, probably more or earlier than what we thought before. Uh, and it's very likely that this recovery uh, will keep increasing, will keep accelerating. Uh, so it's not unlikely that we will be sold out as well on white bodies, but it's probably for 24, 25. That was, of course, the Airbus CEO, my bad, uh, Guillaume Fauré, uh, talking about the order competition. A guy continued to talk to him about the potential for reduced energy demand coming into factories because of the gas crisis. Yeah, that's a scenario we have on our risk map. And uh, we consider it's not unlikely uh, that there will be energy shortages, not only in Germany, but in Europe, given the overall situation and the tensions with Russia. Uh, therefore, yes, indeed, we are um, starting to analyze uh, what would be the possibilities to adapt to such a scenario. It's part of the uh, yeah. risk analysis that we are doing for availability of many things, including energy. Could it, could it affect the ramp? Could it affect... Delivery. The objective is to not impact our operational activities um, and we are trying to look at different ways, getting more energy, getting different uh, ways of operating um, with less uh, energy requirements. That's currently what we are doing and we think that's manageable, uh, but it will need a lot of work yep. and a lot of activity to get there. We're standing here. It's been incredibly warm here today, mm -hmm. probably the warmest air show. Certainly one of the warmest air shows I've ever been to. Mm. I understand it's been super hot down in Toulouse as well. Um, it, it, this is an example of, of why this industry needs to make the progression that it needs mm. to make in terms of the, the work we need to, to deliver on getting to, to net zero. Are you confident that we are making fast enough progress at this point? I think we need to be faster. This industry needs to, to get faster. We need more sustainable aviation fuel on the short term. Uh, it's important to see also energy producers and the whole ecosystem uh, accelerating. I think the aviation has really uh, understood that there is urgency. There is a big shift from 2019 to 2022. Uh, I see only people which are really convinced that this is the challenge uh, that we must overcome, but it's all about speed. We need more speed. Uh, and this weather, as you rightly said, yep. is a stark reminder that global warming is already happening now. Do you worry that all the other challenges the industry is facing right now may deflect away from that challenge? I'm not sure. I was quite amazed by the energy, by the focus that was put on, um, on decarbonization during COVID. We had a big challenge with COVID still. We've been very focused on accelerating decarbonization. Governments have put support. Now we see uh, regulation, uh, rulemaking coming. So I think there is, there is a consensus that this becomes the priority and we are no longer on if or yep. when, it's now. Uh, and we are on how now, and we are working on solutions. We are no longer on the problems, yeah. we are on the solutions. That was Guy Johnson with Guillaume Foray, uh, CEO of Airbus. You're getting on a plane soon. I am. Are you worried about delays, yada, yada? I've tagged all my bags. Well, I'm doing carry-on only. Carry-on only. Can't put it under yet, and I'm going to tag everything, you know, and uh, I'll probably still be forced to put them underneath, lose them, and never see my clothes again. So that's... Uh, that's Shopping trip. <laughs> Shopping. I'm sure your wife isn't totally opposed to that. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, coming up, we'll talk big banks. Uh, Goldman Sachs stock up very solidly today, up over 5%. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. Goldman Sachs stock up now by about 2.7%. Um, traders really helped to fuel that second quarter beat. There is still an investment banking slump. And also, Goldman's going to slow hiring. It was really a mix of different things uh, throughout the call and throughout the quarterly number. Shanali Basak is here and joins us. Hey, Shanali, what was up with the hiring point that Goldman's going to slow hiring? Was this a surprise to you? Uh, yes. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's not a surprise in the sense that we know the market is getting tougher and banks tend to really uh, tighten the belts when the environment gets tougher. We have heard Goldman guide time and time again that um, they have levers when it comes to both headcount and when it comes to pay. And that's mostly because they pay for performance. If the environment gets tougher, people make less money. It's that simple. But to slow hiring velocity, now there are real questions about where. And when they say slowing hiring velocity, does that mean that, you know, are they going to stop filling certain roles? To what extent are they going to see real headcount reductions? Is it going to be more than normal course of business, which is about 5% at the end of the year typically? So how are we looking at how much headcount reductions or slowdowns can really, um, you know, take hold. Uh, it's now faced um, directly by Goldman Sachs, but to, to what extent do the other banks start catching up when they don't have soaring trading performance and advisory performance? Well, Shanali, I mean, take me through, you know, net interest margins, you know, I mean, you would think now with the curve flattening, I mean, inverted, right, that 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 some of the, you know, the banks would be talking about this and talking about the squeeze on margins. I mean, any color from Bank of America or Goldman on that? Well, the funny thing about it is I was talking about this with Allison Williams, and what happened was the banks that used to give guidance, they used to get uh, pounded by investors for doing so. And so now they don't want to give you a lot of guidance. Mm-hmm. They will only look about a quarter out. And the future beyond that is way too uncertain. There are some bright spots in that, for example, at Bank of America, net charge-offs are only like 1.6% of the book, which is next to nothing historically. But the fact that um, there are a lot of worries ahead, listen, uh, they are making net interest income because of uh, of rising interest rates. But now J.P. Morgan and Bank of America have essentially guided that you're you're basically seeing that priced in. Uh, You're seeing the effects of that taking hold. 100 basis points is not going to add much more off of 75. And guess what? To your point, that flatter yield curve, they they have given a lot of guidance that billions of dollars are at stake here Mm -hmm. uh, with that inversion. Yeah, I was going to say, like an inverted curve can't help, even if interest rates are broadly higher. Um, Was there anything stand out on the positive side? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Even though underwriting is really uh, slowing down, I think David Solomon's point that he made to investors this morning was that you're not seeing risk appetite completely dry up. In fact, what you're seeing is people having to get used to different pricing. You see it in leveraged loans, for example. You saw banks take, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of write-downs, mark-to-market write-downs on spread widening. But, you know, it's not stopping activity completely. Uh, People are not going to want to raise more money in a, a, when they don't know kind of where volatility is heading. However, it's not like there isn't risk being taken on at all. Uh, that sounds like a very small bright spot, <laughs> but um, it's not for nothing. It, it means that there is some dry powder when the days do start getting a little brighter. But right now, the future is a little too uncertain to put real money to work. Shanali, recession fears, I mean, risk of recession is really fast becoming the consensus call here on Wall Street. You know, my question for you is, was there any guidance with respect to non-performing loans, potential defaults, things of that nature? 
Yeah, and and that's a big thing. Again, not a whole lot of guidance. But the thing is, you do see these executives trying to keep, um, you know, their head on straight. They're not saying that things are going to crash to the ground. I'll take uh, Morgan Stanley, for example, that said it clearest. They do see a U.S. recession, but they don't think it's going to be deep or drastic. So even though a recession is essentially the base case for a lot of the big banks that we're talking to, if not this year, then by the end of next year, the question is two things. How bad can a recession get and how long can it run for? And how then do we rebound from that? Right. And how much is the Fed going to have to hike to destroy demand? And what kind of slowdown slash recession does that look like? Hey, Shanali, you've done such a great job covering the banks for the last few days. Awesome we really job. appreciate it. Uh, Shanali Basak joining us there from Bloomberg. Coming up, everything that Damien cares about in seven minutes. Yeah? He <laughs> yeah, talks sure. fast. Let's do it. This do is it. Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio, DAB Digital Radio, The Cable. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson is on assignment today. Uh, joining me in the studio, Damien Sassari has been a fantastic co-host for this whole hour. And now we get to dig into all the nerdy stuff that he likes. But first, we're going to start with something that I want to understand better. What is going on with the mortgage meltdown uh. Over in China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So common practice in China are for home buyers to prepay for a new purchase, for a new home, and um, and then when it's finally built and constructed, they get to live in it. And Wait, so let me get this right. I'm paying for a home that, you that hasn't in. yet been built. Correct. Because Correct. that the developer is then going to use that money then help build the home. That's right. They use the fund from pre-sales for construction. And so um, basically what you're seeing is this sort of uh, this sort of buyer strike, right? They basically you know um, bought these homes, um, a lot of them on leverage with, with borrowed money from banks, and they're refusing to pay the banks on the loans that they've taken out to buy these homes. And so now you're seeing how the contagion and the spillover can move from the mortgage market mm-hmm. to the banking sector. And you're seeing Ag Bank, ICBC, you know, obviously it's a relatively small part of their loan books, but you're starting to see it increase. And if this kind of, you know, sort of mastercizes, you could see contagion into the broader financial system, and you could see social instability. So, one thing at a time. So, I'm a I'm paying for a mortgage with a house I don't have. Right now, the government says, okay, you know what? You don't have to pay that mortgage until you get the house. How does then the construction? company or developer or whatever, build the house. Get the money house. to build the house. That's where the rubber meets the road. I mean, look, the fact of the matter is these developers were supposed to use that money to to, to to build. And what happened was they, too, took on a lot of leverage and they had to pay off their creditors. So the money that these, you know, that, that mom and pop to buy their home basically plunked in has been used to pay off other people. So it's oh, a really messy situation. And so the developers now can't borrow from the banks. The banks won't lend them money mm-hmm. because of the crisis that's going on in the mortgage market. And it's spread all the way from Evergrande, you know, some years a year ago, to the most uh, investment grade, high quality Vanke and Country Garden are the two I'm thinking of, and so you know the pressure's on. Their bonds are getting crushed. The equity prices have gotten demolished, and no banks want to lend them money to finish these projects, which are not finished yet. So, so does the government write a big check to the developers now, or do they go tell the banks you have to give them money? That's exactly right. That's what we're hoping will happen. That the Chinese government realizes that this is a major problem. They're going to step in. Um, they're trying to do that now. They're trying to get the banks convince the banks to lend more to these developers to sort of get the market uh, moving along. But my God, I mean, the, chi- the, the, the just Alex, the, the the housing sector in China accounts for roughly a quarter of GDP. It accounts for roughly 35 to 40% of bank loan books. It's massive. It accounts for 70% of middle, uh, middle class wealth. They've invested in their homes, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. if the housing market goes wheels up, yeah, it's going to be a, it's going to well, be a nightmare. And not to mention the fact that 
irrespective of the intricacies of the mortgage market in China, if you can't get the lumber and the steel to build the house, it doesn't really matter how much money you do or don't have. <laughs> and that's what emerging markets are waiting for, right? Right in my wheelhouse, emerging markets, many of whom are commodity exporters, are waiting for China to commit to um, oh, to more construction, more infrastructure spending, more development. And that's actually what has been happening. If you look at you know, the money that's spent on total social financing data and all this kind of stuff that's going on in China, it really is government spending, which is fueling what little growth they have now because growth has come off so sharply. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we saw the GDP data last week. So, you know, for me, it's just a matter of, you know, how much are they prepared to go on that? And right now they haven't showed much of a no. willingness to want to increase leverage. I mean, we know they've had a leverage problem in the past. They've tried to bring things down. But, you know, the economy's hurting. All right. So I have a lot more questions for you, but I'll <laughs> let you in the three minutes we have. What do, what do you what are you into right now? <laughs> What am I into? Uh, oh, God. I'm going on vacation into, uh, like a second. So I'm into he's the kind New York of Yankees. Packing. I'm into golf. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> look, I think I think what you have to look at is it's, for me, it's the disparity. It's really the dollar. So it's the disparity more between the dollar, the euro, and the yen that really has caught my attention. And I've said this probably on air a million times. I'm going to say it again. If you look at the 21 top emerging market currencies that are out there, the majors, only two are positive in US dollar terms year to date. Wow. But if you look at it in euro terms, it's like 16 or 17. And in yen terms, it's nine out of 21. So what it means is, you know, there's still a ton of money to be made in emerging markets. It just depends on your funding currency. If you're a US dollar investor and you're going to, you know, invest abroad in emerging markets, good luck trying to make money there. But if you're based in Europe or in Japan, I mean, you hear about, you know, Japanese housewives, they like to trade, you know, mm-hmm. you know, currencies, you know, they're making quite a bit of bank on that, right? So it, it does have, you know, sort of an impetus in my mind for where you want to kind of dig your heels in as an emerging market investor and sort of uh, try to, you know, extract value out of the market. Aren't all emerging markets supposed to be bad when the Fed hikes and the dollar is strong? Yeah. No, I, and don't get me wrong, the pressure is there. I mean, I, for me, it's so if you look at the big four central bank balance sheets, the Fed, the ECB, the BOJ, and the PBOC in China, this is the first time since 2018 where that balance sheet is actually contracting. The last time we saw that, we saw a massive sell off in equities, something like a 10 to 20% mm-hmm. sell off in the S&P. And we saw yields just spike higher, gap wider, spreads, all of that. And quite frankly, that's what I'm waiting for. We need to see the real fear, the real pain hit the market. And I think the first place it's going to hit, or not the first place, but the real place it's going gonna, it's gonna to manifest itself is in spreads. Do you think that there is an emerging market that you are, are look at that can weather this environment the best? Because by all accounts, except I guess for China, um, the kind of leverage that we're used to seeing in emerging markets when there's a Fed hiking cycle is much less. Yeah. In addition to the positioning into emerging markets is also not as high and as strong as it used to be. Correct. So and the technicals are there. I mean, they're supportive, right? Because they're underinvested right now. But the real... The real thing you're asking, and it's the best question, and if I had an answer for you, I wouldn't be here. I'd be sitting on a bitch sipping margaritas, is terms of trade, right? Like (laughs) People assume that if commodity prices are going up, that's going to be great for commodity export. It's going to be wonderful. But if inflation is rising faster, you have a cost of living crisis, and it just can't keep up, right? Mm -hmm. So that is the real issue, and it's very, very difficult for any analyst or strategist to try and determine which countries have a net positive impact from the change in commodity prices terms of trade effectively. So, you know, I know of one, uh, two, sorry, Saudi Arabia and Qatar, you know, because obviously, yeah, yeah, you know, so obviously the Middle East is benefiting, but it's not a zero-sum game and it's very, very difficult to tell which who who are going to be the winners and who are going to be the losers. Yeah, I do not envy your space right now (laughs) at all. Um, Do you have a favorite sport, by the way? So Damien's like a really big sports guy. 
It would be football. Uh, and football, but I mean American football. Sorry. Yeah, I got confused there for a second. I was like, <laughs> wait, what? Really? Soccer? Hey, Damien, thanks a lot. It was really fun to catch up with you. I always enjoy talking to you, and I always learn something. Damien Sassauer of Bloomberg Intelligence. You've been listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful evening, guys. Happy Monday, and I will see you tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.